The history of teaching as a profession is a complicated one. A fascinating historical figure named Catherine Beecher, who was an American educator and woman activist of the 1870s, framed teaching as sacrificial and moral work. She did this to shift the rhetoric of the time, which largely consisted of women needing to be in the home. By framing teaching as sacrificial and moral work, it allowed her to shift the rhetoric to, there are jobs that women are suited for. The strategy worked. More women were able to be single and live outside the home because there were jobs that society saw that they were suited for. But like any other degrading ideology, it happened because those in power benefited. Women could be paid less, which made public education less of a financial burden for the community and the policymakers of the time. Since that point in time, teaching is consciously and unconsciously framed as a pink collar profession. And that reality rests in the greater history of labor, which consists of the intersection of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in the United States. This history creates a pattern of workers advocating for proper wages, benefits, and rights within the workplace, and those in power sometimes adamantly crushing those movements of workers advocating that they carry the proper burden of policy. This leaves us with the question of how do unions and strikes insert themselves into this pattern? What do each of these actually accomplish? This is When Teachers Strike, a four-part podcast on teachers and what they do to protect the communities they serve. Episode two, Nuance and Myths. I'm Jennifer Berkshire, and I am a writer, and I actually started out um, in an academic program. I have a PhD in English, and I was going to grad school in the Midwest, and it happened that there were three very sort of explosive labor battles happening very close to where I was in grad school. And so, you know, I would sort of eke out my dissertation one sentence at a time. But what really interested me was going to the uh, these work sites and to the picket lines and talking to workers about what was happening. It was the 90s and things we were I in the... I am the Melissa Arnold-Lyon. I... Um... Also, you can just call me Mimi for short. That's what most everyone calls me. Um, and I am currently a postdoctoral research associate at Brown. And just prior to that, I got my PhD in education policy and social analysis from Teachers College at Columbia University. I study the political economy of education. So I'm interested in inequality, federalism, and teacher politics and policy, and how sort of uh, politics shapes market incentives and how economics and economic inequality shape politics in these sort of complex feedback loops. And so I study teachers unions often as an example of those sorts of uh, complex relationships between politics and economics in education. Jennifer has recently published a book she co-authored entitled A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, which covers in part the consequences that teachers face as a workforce in the political push to privatize public education. In addition to this, she also has expertise in the history of labor in the United States. Melissa is an author of one of the first papers I read this semester entitled Heroes, Villains, or Something in Between, 
how right-to-work policies affect teachers, students, and education and policymaking. As I was writing show notes for this episode, I realized that there were numerous places that I could begin, but I landed on starting with the use of rhetoric and policy. Rhetoric is the art of framing an argument in a persuasive way, and it sometimes can be disingenuous or lack significant substance. However, it's something that must be considered when looking at labor movements. Is the workforce able to frame an argument in a way that captures society's attention and support? Yes. Um, so I actually, um, I have taught a course on and off for many years at the Labor Center at UMass Amherst called Labor in the Media. And so that's one of the questions that we ask. You know, why, why have workers so often had a hard time making their case? And so we go through and we look at all of these examples where, you know, where they've been successful and where they've really fallen flat. And you see teachers on both sides of that dividing line. So waiting for Superman, for example, and really the whole Obama era um, would be an example of a real sort of bleak patch for teachers being able to articulate um, their kind of workplace interests in a way that wasn't just held against them. You'll notice that Jennifer made note of Awaiting for Superman and how that began to spark a certain rhetoric. Once again, my context is I entered the teaching profession on the heels of that documentary being released. And it's just another example that there has been a consistent flux of reform initiatives in education over the last 30 years. And in those 30 years, there have been constant framing wars around what the teaching profession is. This caused Dana Goldstein, the author of The Teacher Wars, to call teaching one of the most controversial professions in America. Now, in those 30 years of initiatives and reforms, there have been moments where teachers have been able to capture the attention of the community and garner their support. But then you fast forward a little bit to Red for Ed, and you see the complete opposite happened, which was that teachers were able to make the case in a way that legislators in all these states were had you know a terrible time responding to. Right, that teachers were able to make the case that that states were divesting from public education and from kids. And you know that this was a powerful message because parents and students joined with them. Right. And you, you know, you fast forward to the present and a lot of those uh, those legislatures where Republicans made big gains in 2020. One of the first things that they've tried to do is figure out how to muzzle teachers. And so while I would say that you're absolutely right, that that teachers have had, you know, there's there's something about the nature of education and the fact that so many people are involved in it, that um, that makes it it makes teachers vulnerable but i also think that when that um when they're smart that they they have a, a bullhorn and they're able to use it quite effectively and i would say that you even see examples of that happening um through this long long pandemic so teachers in most of these communities, and through no fault of their own, right, because of the way that, that states all, like, there's no state that handled this particularly well, right, that they, the pressures in the U.S. to keep businesses open have meant that communities have really been on their own, including school districts. And so 
it's really been, you know, the only organized group you have demanding any kind of safety response is the teachers. And this brings us to unions, specifically teachers unions and what they actually do and how they're perceived. You tell people what, that you study teachers unions, often the first thing you get asked is, and you may have noticed this in your own work, is, okay, so are you pro or are you against? And sort of that, like, that that would be the fundamental question right off the bat. You study unions, are you for or against them? And to me, that feels uh, way too simple. And I think that unions do a lot more than, uh, than is often discussed. And that I think, but the framing of the conversation so often just begins with I'm for or against, and then let's, could, let's talk about them in the context of being pro-union, or let's talk about unions in the context of being anti-union and let me tell you all the things that are bad about them, or, and let me tell you all the things that are good about them, and let's not have a conversation that sort of acknowledges that some things they do are might be good in some places, they might be good, some things that they do in some places might be bad, and that let's just have a deeper conversation about it. So let's have a deeper conversation about unions. To begin, we have to understand that unions are often looked at in two specific ways. So... Um, the two dominant ways of thinking about teachers unions, we have these, these names for them, teacher voice and rent seeking, and they've sort of evolved out of, and some people might say out of this sort of, uh, what do we want to say, seminal text by Freeman and Madoff in 84, what do unions do? And they present the two faces of unionism, which they call the collective voice face and monopoly face. So you can already see the relationship teacher voice being the collective voice face and then um, rent seeking being related to the monopoly face. All right, are you still with me? It's okay if you aren't. Here's some nice background music to bring your mind back. Melissa is talking about rent seeking. And rent seeking is a framework that people view unions through, and it just simply can be defined as the pursuit of teacher interest. Unions extract rent such as salary, better benefits, and smaller class sizes in order to gain more union membership and establish itself as a stronger political force. Now, in What Do Unions Do, the text that Melissa referenced, this aspect of unions is often seen as negative because teachers' interests are often casted as in opposition to student interest. A major opponent of unions because of their rent-seeking behavior is a professor from Stanford by the name of Dr. Terry Moe. His book, Special Interest, is widely cited. Here he is doing an interview about his book, critiquing teacher Almost unions. Anybody who follows American education knows these days that the teachers unions are by far the most powerful force in American education. They shape the schools from the bottom up through collective bargaining where they impose countless, sometimes hundreds, of restrictive work rules on the schools that shape their organization in ways that make it very difficult for them uh, to be effective. And they shape the schools from the top down through politics, where they play very influential roles and use the various checks and balances built into the American political system to block reform. And they've been blocking reform for the last quarter century. And despite their enormous importance um, in shaping the schools and in sort of understanding... How
Teachers' interests certainly need to be critiqued. In 2018, it was discovered that $56.2 billion of Pennsylvanian teacher pensions were being invested in organizations that were responsible for running private prisons and the detention centers at the border. The American Federation of Teachers did step in and request that teachers' pensions no longer be invested in those organizations, but nonetheless, I'm not making an argument that organized teachers are without fault. There does seem to be a problem in reducing rent-seeking to something negative and in direct opposition to student interests. The first problem is human interests are not zero-sum games. Teachers are complex. And I think, like, teachers... I was a teacher, you were a teacher. Teachers are often just thought of as this sort of like isolated person in the classroom. But teachers are parents, teachers are community members. In a lot of places, the schools are the largest employers in those places of all workers, you know? And so to think about teachers in this sort of like narrow view of the person who's standing in the classroom but doesn't have a life outside of that, I think is sort of missing the, 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 the real story. And if we could go back to a real story for a moment, New Orleans is a place where the teacher union was significantly weakened, and the result was the ecosystem that the school existed in was filled with distrust. Teachers do need to be protected if we see schools as complex places. Another problem with seeing rent-seeking as something solely negative is that it assumes that removing or weakening teacher unions will result in more reforms. And this actually isn't the case. Here's Melissa talking about some of her research. So what I find is that there, I don't find any measurable effects on like the second order outcomes we think of, school spending, teacher salaries, class sizes, and education policy making. And education policy making, I look at charter schools, I look at um, merit pay, I look at uh, school choice, and I look at Teach for America expansion. So some of these policies that unions have come out really big against, and that unions often get blamed for blocking. And But the weakening of unions doesn't appear to increase the likelihood that states have these education reform policies. So one of the myths of unions is that they consistently block reform. However, in Melissa's findings, Unions being weakened doesn't necessarily increase the likelihood of those reforms happening. And what is brilliant is her explanation as to why that isn't happening. Here she is explaining more. It's going to have to be a lot bigger than just breaking the union. It, It needs to be a reflection of sort of like the underlying beliefs that people have about the role of education and how teachers should interact with families and what should happen in schools, Um, which is obviously harder to change than just pass a right to work policy. If reformers want change in the policy, it isn't solely a matter of weakening the teacher unions, but rather it is a matter of influencing the entire community. Schools truly exist in an ecosystem And policy must consider all parties if that policy is to take root. Now, rent-seeking isn't the only framework to consider when looking at unions. The other framework is called teacher voice, and it's important for two reasons. And I think something you asked earlier 
I didn't totally cover was kind of like the the nuance in the teacher voice theory, right? Because it, it, it's something you're bringing up now again too. It's not just the argument that teachers unions are good. It's an art. It's kind of a two pronged argument that teachers you teacher voice matters because teachers are policy implementers, and so they are the ones. If you have a policy that you think matters like curriculum or uh, changes in discipline and those sorts of things you need to have teachers there because they're going to be the ones who are responsible for implementing that policy and they could just choose not to right they're like the street level bureaucrats who could just not do your policy and keep doing their same thing and then what are you going to do about it um, so I think that like policy implementation is a part of the teacher voicing and then there's also the like expertise piece where teachers uh, have expertise and experience on the ground in classrooms and understand how classrooms work. And then the idea that unions make, the argument that unions make, the idea that the teacher voice theory sort of propagates is that because of the democratic structure of teachers' unions, that that voice could travel up and then uh, teachers' unions can represent that voice to policymakers so that policymakers can make policy that reflects uh, sort of the knowledge on the ground. What does this all mean? I think it means two things. First, I think teachers' unions just need to be studied more. If we really embrace this idea of complexity and that schools are in a complex ecosystem of relationships, we have to begin to study the impact of teacher unions on those relationships. I think the second thing it means is that we can't get around rhetoric and storytelling. If unions are going to exist, they have to be able to tell a compelling story that garners the support of the community that they serve. This is actually called something. It's called bargaining for the common good. And it's been used quite a bit since 2012 during the Chicago teacher strike. And here's Jennifer talking more about what exactly is bargaining for the common good. If you look around and you see unions that have embraced what's called bargaining for the common good, is that a big part of that has to do with the story that they tell, that they argue that the interests of the union and the community are inseparable. And so in addition to pushing for things that have to do with teacher working conditions, they're arguing for things like, say, affordable housing or a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, and those, what you'll see is that where unions have really embraced that, it's very hard for critics of unions to know how to respond because those arguments really resonate with the larger community. Now, I do have some hesitation in fully embracing this idea of bargaining for the common good. Because if you remember at the opening of this episode, teaching has historically been framed as a pink collar profession that requires womanly morals and sacrifice. And that framework is just straight up misogynistic and not helpful for the profession. And in reading some definitions of bargaining for common good, I do think that the rent seeking behavior that protects the profession can quickly be forgotten and I do think rent-seeking behavior of unions is necessary for good policymaking. The profession needs to be protected. And once again, I just keep going back to New Orleans and saying like teachers needed to be protected. With that said, though, I 
do believe that bargaining for the common good has its place. In fact, it begins to help me answer a question that I have throughout this series, which is, can communities of color benefit from a workforce that is 80% white and unionized? So there, the union, the teachers union in particular is not a monolith. It has more conservative end. Um, it relies, uh, you know, to a large extent, if you are, if you're a teachers union, you have an interest in the status quo, meaning that your power comes from having a seat at the table, right? And so if you look around to any of the high profile elections where some fiery upstart, unseated, somebody who'd been in office for many years, and I'm thinking about, you know, AOC and uh, knocking out, you know, a many, many termed uh, New York City congressman. Um, uh, even more recently with Jamal Bowman, and who's a teacher in New York. If you look at who the United Federation of Teachers, which is the New York City chapter of AFT, who did they endorse? They never endorse the upstart. They always endorse the, um, the establishment person because, you know, like that establishment person has power. And so bargaining for the common good works in a very similar way that you have within the sort of house of the AFT, you have locals that are more fiery. And I'm thinking about, you know, Chicago, um, uh, also Los Angeles, and also Baltimore. And so they, you will hear them, they talk about, about race all the time. Um, Chicago really set us down this path. They um, released a big report called The Schools Our Children Deserve. Um, and all about sort of the state of Chicago. And then they were relentless about going after Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor for so many years, about what seemed like a concerted effort on his part to make Chicago a richer, whiter city. And so part of their power comes from the, their connection with the broader community in Chicago and the way that they've really put race front and center. Now, if you're Randy Weingarten, you're um, there. She's had a prickly relationship with them over the years, right? And so, you know, you're trying to keep a lot of people happy, and so I'm not surprised that you don't necessarily hear her talking about bargaining for the coming good, but it for the common good. But you feel it as a movement; it's gaining momentum. Um, one of the first uh, book events that we did was with uh, a rebel caucus in Michigan um, called MyCore, and that's the Congress of Rank-and-File Educators. And so they are all members of the NEA and the AFT in Michigan, but they find the establishment unions much too tame um, for what they, for the problems that they see confronting kids in places like Detroit, they want a much more aggressive union and they want a union that really centers race and racial justice. And so as a result, MyCore is experiencing tremendous growth among, uh, especially among young teachers who come into teaching motivated by a social justice mission and frankly feel that their unions that have been beaten down for so long can't deliver a whole lot. 
right? Like they don't want to just go to a big convention. They, they want to be part of something that's going to fight and something that's going to speak in terms that resonates with the communities that they're part of. Teaching unions aren't perfect. Teaching unions are necessary. Teaching unions don't do what half of Twitter says that they do. Teacher unions can tell a story that works to empower communities of color. But what happens in states where unions aren't able to do that? In episode three, we begin to try to answer that question. I want to thank both Jennifer and Melissa for their generosity. I've linked Jennifer's book in the show notes as well as Melissa's most recent publication. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a review, and share this episode. Also, if you have any questions or would like to fact check, please either follow me on Instagram or send an email to podcast at thecriticalteacher.com.